Sometimes contracts have unusual clauses attached to them. Soccer contracts are notorious for their strange stipulations. Consider the case of Neil Ruddock. Neil was a tough defender, voted one of the hardest footballers of all time. He even represented his country on the English national team in 1994. But Neil was a big player. So big, in fact, that when he moved to Crystal Palace, that's not a place, it's a team, but when he moved to Crystal Palace, the club put a requirement in his contract when he signed. If he exceeded 220 pounds, his salary would be cut by 10% each time they weighed him. Within six months, Neil had been fined eight times. Needless to say, he wasn't with the team long. Now, in our text tonight, God appears again to Abraham, his friend. He comes to assure Abraham of the covenant he had made with him, but he also comes to reveal more information about all the promises that the Lord had made to him and his family, including a new responsibility that Abraham and all of his male descendants would have. Now, 13 years have passed between the last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17. It's a long time. Abraham has been in the land of Canaan for 25 years. And from what we can tell, a long time has passed since he's heard from the Lord, at least directly. And so we pick back up in verse 1. We read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. So God shares a new name with his friend here. It's El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that before. Who knows the old, is it Amy Grant? Who knows the old Amy Grant song? I know the first, you know, I know El Shaddai and then I can't sing the rest of it because she sings something else in Hebrew, but El Shaddai. Now we often translate it and probably in her translation it says God Almighty there. And the reason it's translated as God Almighty is because That's what Jerome did when he translated the Latin Vulgate. But scholars really aren't sure what exactly this name means. That's okay, because we can understand a lot about what it means from the context of when we see it used. Bible commentator Derek Kidner writes this, There is no universal agreement as to what this name means. A better guide is to study, is the study of its use. In Genesis, El Shaddai tends to be matched to situations where God's servants are hard-pressed and need reassurance. So a comforting name to be sure. Interestingly, El Shaddai is the name that both Job uses in his book and the name that Balaam uses in his oracles concerning Israel. Certainly, it speaks of God's power and His might, but there's more than just strength being talked about. It describes God as the sovereign source of life and blessing and fruitfulness. And so coming and sharing this name where he says, hey, Abraham, I am El Shaddai. I am the God of blessing and and fruitfulness. I am the source of, of true life. The name itself is an invitation for a person to come and become acquainted with this God. Let me know about it. Let me hear about what your blessing is all about. I want to experience that in my own life. And, and, and it's an invitation to see what this God will do in your life. And that's exactly what he invites Abraham to do. He says, live in my presence. I'm El Shaddai, live in my presence. Or your translation may say, walk before me. What does this mean? A believer is to live out their lives in communion with 
and mindful devotion to God, to make decisions based on our trust in God, relying on what He has said, what He has revealed to us. For us on on this side of the cross and the time in which we live, what He has revealed in, in the Scripture, the Holy Bible, inspired, inerrant, delivered to us so that we might know who God is and what He has said and uh, who Jesus is and all these other things from cover to cover. And so we're to live out our lives, not just intellectually believing that God exists or even intellectually believing that Jesus was a historical figure and that he really lived and died for our sins and that we kind of go through that transaction. But God says, no, I I want you to walk before me. I want you to live out your life in my presence. But there's a problem for us and for Abraham. He says to Abraham here, as you do this, as you walk before me and live in my presence, I need you to be blameless. God is a holy God. He's a perfect God. He does not tolerate sin in the sense that he doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He wants to deal with sin, and he's not okay with sin. And so he says, hey, you need to be blameless. Now, of course, Abraham was far from blameless. His second wife, Hagar, was living, walking proof of his previous failures. Can you imagine as he's talking with God in this situation and we have, you know, in a minute we're going to see God withdraws. And so it would seem that this is perhaps another theophany, another appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. They're having a conversation as friends do. Can you imagine if Hagar walked in with a cup of water to, you know, be blameless and, and, and Abraham's like, get out. <laughs> I picked you up in Egypt on a trip I shouldn't have gone on when I was being faithless before God. And then me and Sarah had this terrible plan. It caused all kinds of problems. Well, Abraham wasn't blameless and neither are we. So how can we live up to this, right? David writes, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, right? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's a problem, of course. But the Bible reveals not only that God requires blamelessness and uprightness, which he does, But it also reveals, of course, that he knows about our imperfections and our failures. He's no stranger to that knowledge. Uh, He knows the sins you have still yet to commit. Uh, He knows every day of your life and all of the things that are contained therein. And, And we find in the Bible that God is willing to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, to make us right before him, to correct us so that we can be blameless in his sight. That's the whole point of Jesus coming, to take away the sins of the world. But as we walk with him as well, as we live out our lives before him, there's that ongoing process that we call sanctification, where God is working in us, changing our hearts, changing our lives, changing our perspective, so that we are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at us, he doesn't say, well, they're not, you know, he says we're not done yet. He's still working on us and he's going to perfect and finish the work that he began in us. But when he looks at us right now, he doesn't just see a pile of sin. He sees the blood of Jesus, which has made us white as snow. If you're a believer, if you're born again. And so God is doing this work of conforming us and making us right in his sight. One scholar writes this, the Hebrew word here signifies wholeness of relationship rather than no sin when he says, be blameless. And so God wasn't asking Abraham or you to do something that couldn't be done, right? We know that Enoch was considered blameless in the book of Genesis. Noah was considered an upright, blameless man, and, and, and Noah wasn't perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. We aren't perfect. God knows. 
He says, you can walk in, in close fellowship with me. You can walk before me, live out your life in my presence, in the blamelessness that I provide through my holiness and my work in your life. This is what God desires for all of his children, that we live out our lives in his presence, in a whole relationship which deepens and grows and progresses as we allow him to do what he wants in us. It's not that we scrub the bad stuff off of ourselves and then come to God and say, hey, do, do we pass the white glove test? No, he's the one that does the work of cleansing and renewing and transforming. Our job is to participate in that work, right? The New Testament says, let this mind be in you. You know, it says, let the Lord do the work that he wants to do. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. And so the same idea is being given to Abraham here. Verse 2, I will set up my covenant between me and you. I'll multiply you greatly. In order for God to give all he wanted to Abraham, Abraham would need to participate in certain ways. God is not saying here, if you've been with us through most of these studies, we saw that, wait a minute, I, uh, we, we've played this episode before. Haven't we already done all of this covenant stuff? Was God coming and saying, you know, I made these promises before, but mm, I'm going to add a couple more clauses and a couple riders onto there because you're kind of biffing it uh, with what you're doing. That's not what's happening. No, th the promise was done. The covenant was made. It was the Lord who said, I will do this. But as one commentator says, revelation brings responsibility. It's true for Abraham. It's true for us as well. From one perspective... It almost seems like God is really demanding in this chapter, I want this, I want that, you do this, you do that. That's really not the case if we see what's happening here. God is explaining to Abraham more of what he intends to do for Abraham. And those intentions that God has have a lot of implications for Abraham and his family and his future. God is asking Abraham to participate, to partner, to join in the work not so that the Lord can get anything from Abraham, but so that the Lord can give all that he wants to give. And what God wants to give is big. In the Hebrew, we're told there is an emphatic repetition, something like this, I will multiply you exceedingly, exceedingly. I love when God uses um, unconventional grammar like that. He really wants to get this idea across of, all that he wants to do in Abraham's life every day, not just give him one son, but he says, I want, I want to just multiply you exceedingly, exceedingly. I want to do so many great things in your life. Verse three, Abraham fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. Abraham doesn't know what to say, who would in this situation, but even though he doesn't know what to say, he has worship to give. And that is a great just sort of devotional glimpse that we see here in this scene. As he worships, the Lord gives Abraham the name by which we know him. Abram means exalted father. It could be referring to Abram, but more likely referring to his dad or the God that he serves. Whereas Abraham means father of multitudes. Now, for years, Abraham had treasured God's covenant in his heart. He was a faithful believer, the father of faith, we call him. But in reality, he didn't know the half of it. 
he thought, the Lord's going to give me a son. I don't know how, but he's going to give me a son. And we're going to see he thinks that maybe that's already happened. And when we kind of take a step back and see what's happening here, we say, Abraham, you, you didn't know the half of what God wants to do in your life. You, you knew one little drop of what God had promised, and he had so, so, so very much more. God had so much more planned for this man and this family and the world through this family. From Abraham, there wouldn't be just one nation, but many. We know some of them as the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the Midianites. But of course, there would be one special, unique nation called Israel, through which God would do a singular, spectacular, special work, the work of redemption, of bringing the deliverer once for all, for all mankind. Of course, the New Testament also reveals that Abraham is the father of all who believe, Paul says in the book of Romans. And so what a remarkable thing that the Lord did through the regular family life of this man and his wife. Uh, just in an, an astonishing work that ripples through time and continues day by day by day because this family, though imperfectly, were willing to walk with God. It started with simple faith. It progressed slowly and in bumpy ways sometimes, but the Lord can take small mustard seed faith and do incredible history-changing things. Verse 7, I'll confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God says, I will, no fewer than 16 times in this passage, at least in my translation. And when he says he will... He means he really will. Now, there are some who say that God has canceled his land promise to the physical descendants of Abraham, that he has transferred these promises to others, that he has spiritualized them in some way. But let's take note here. His promise of descendants to Abraham was true and literal, a literal Isaac, real kings like David and Solomon, and of course, Jesus, the real Messiah who literally came not figuratively, not allegorically, not spiritually. He really came. He lived and walked among us. How dare we say that one portion of God's words are just as they seem while the very next portion has failed or has changed or was a switcheroo that God did? That's some kind of human nonsense that people put onto the word of God. No, God has a particular ongoing plan for the Jewish people, as he's very clear about in this passage and in so many others in the word of God. And it is a plan that will culminate in a true, literal 1,000-year kingdom on this earth, where Israel, Jews descended from Abraham, ethnic Israel, will finally receive the land that they've been promised. Now, this is all glorious to us, but we have to recognize how foolish and it would have been to the world around Abraham. He mixes with the world. We saw before he had business connections with some Amorites and those sorts of things. He didn't just live on a hill somewhere and never talk to anybody. He was a, he was a big businessman with a large household, hundreds of people, lots of back and forth in the communities around him. So imagine this. Oh, who are you? Oh, me? I'm the father of a multitude. Oh, where are your kids? Oh, I just have the one, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to have one more soon. Okay. What does multitude mean in your language? I know you're Hebrews, but, you know, what, what does that mean? 
Uh, so uh, what do you do? Oh, what do we do? I'm glad you asked. We're actually the true owners of all this land. Kings, really? Okay. Do you have a deed to any of this land? No, I don't really own anything. I'm going to own a grave at one point, and that's it. God's message, whether it's the time of Abraham or in our own time, is foolishness in the eyes of the world, right? The New Testament tells us that. But that doesn't mean it's untrue, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Whether people laugh or think us foolish, that doesn't matter, because let God be true and every man a liar. Verse 9, God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So was God changing the terms of the agreement? Was he suddenly adding a new clause uh, that if Abraham wanted into these promises, he would have to do this unusual thing? No, circumcision was not a way to get in as far as God is presenting it here. It was simply the sign of the fact that Abraham did believe and that he had partnered with the Lord and that he trusted the Lord. It was a reminder, a symbol, a sign of what Abraham and his family had already agreed to. When a policeman receives a badge, the badge has no power in and of itself. And I can prove that because if I went out and took a cop's badge, that does not make me a policeman, right? It makes me a lawbreaker. It makes me someone who's imitating a policeman and I'm going to go to jail. But it's California, so they'll let me out. It's no big deal. <laughs> But when you see an officer's badge of a, of a legitimate police officer walking around the street, walking up to the left side of your car there, when you see that badge, it is a symbol of their affiliation, of their authority, of their legitimacy, of their sacrifice, of their service, of the vow that they have taken. Circumcision was a symbol, a reminder of who God's people were. Yes, it was commanded. It was something that God absolutely commanded these folks to do. Uh, but it is a symbol of what had already happened in the heart of these people. Now, the Hebrews weren't the first to circumcise. This wasn't new with them. Even at this time, other cultures in the world were doing it, usually for certain classes of people like priests. That's what they did in Egypt. And it was usually done at adolescence rather than infancy. But God was using this custom in a special way to be an intensely personal reminder to individuals of the work he was doing in their hearts and through their lives, that they were a set-apart people, set apart for a spiritual work which would permeate every aspect of their lives. Though the symbol was physical for Abraham, it is the heart that God really cared about. It's not just that God cared about the heart in the New Testament, but he cared about the body in the Old Testament. That's not the case of, at all. Even in the Old Testament, even in the law, it's made abundantly clear that the physical rite of circumcision, though commanded, was only to signify the transaction of the heart and the life God had called this people to. 
Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. And then in a later time in Israel's history, when Israel was in really bad spiritual shape, here's what Jeremiah the prophet said in chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. And so it's the heart that God has always been after. This idea of heart change and heart transformation and heart set apartness to the Lord, it carries into the New Testament. Along with the stipulations of the Mosaic law, physical circumcision is no longer a requirement for God's people. Paul discusses it in Romans 2 at length. He has a whole section about circumcision and how what God is dealing with is hearts. The works of the law, the works of required physical circumcision, that has been finished and completed by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so now, as we as people want to draw near to God and obey God, the conclusion of Paul's discussion is this. True circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit as we submit to the Word of God and walk in faith. Verse 15 of our text says, God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. So both Sarai and Sarah mean princess or queen. The last time we saw Sarah, it wasn't a great episode. Both she and Abraham fell into a serious lapse of faith. We talked about that. But make no mistake, Sarah was an obedient believer. She was a great woman of faith. Her name change gives us two important things to think about. First, it is a wonderful reminder that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you have been adopted into royalty. New Testament says we are a royal priesthood. Of course, our king, King Jesus, he brings us into his household. And he, he says, I'm, I'm not just going to bring you in as slaves. I'm not even just going to bring you in as friends. I'm going to share my kingdom with you. I'm going to share my inheritance. You are going to rule and reign with me. And so the king of heaven and earth has decided to bring us into his royal family. Second, this name change, or specifically Sarah's name, meaning princess, uh, gives us this important devotional thought, which I will happily steal from Warren Wearsby. He says, the Christian husband should treat his wife like a princess because that is what she is in the Lord. All right, fellows, you're married. Your wife is a princess, a queen, a daughter of the Lord. Verse 16 says this, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she will produce nations, kings of peoples will come from her. And so this is the first time that God has finally revealed that Sarah will be the one to bear the child that they've been waiting for. Why, oh, why, oh, why didn't he just tell them earlier? Information that would have been useful to us 13 years ago, God. Why didn't you just tell us and thereby avoid the Ishmael debacle? It's because God is looking for faith. We cannot please God without faith. We're to live by faith. It's the way he wants us to walk in his presence, to do so in a trusting faith where we believe God, 
Not because we see it right in front of us, but because we believe what he said, because we believe that he is good, because we believe that he knows best and that he does best for us. And that we say, okay, Lord, you have said this, so I will do it, whether I can see it right in front of me or not. God is looking for faith. Remember, God doesn't want to have a transactional relationship with us. It's not that we go and buy salvation from him or that we go and and buy information or certificates from him. He says, I don't want to have a transaction with you. I want to have a personal, intimate, affectionate relationship with you as a a person uh, based on tenderness and and love and, 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 and communication and all of these other things. That's what God really wants. Verse 17 says, Abraham fell face down and then he laughed and he said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred year old man? Can Sarah, a 90 year old woman give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Before we get the red pin out to subtract some points from Abraham here, we should notice this. He worships again and he does so even though he clearly doesn't understand how God could possibly accomplish what he says. He says, man, I do not get how that could possibly be true. I'm going to worship anyway. I'm not going to fold my arms and stamp my feet. I'm not going to turn my nose up at at God. I'm going to fall down before him and worship him, not in disbelief, but in a little bit of confusion, but I'm still going to worship because this is God and he's worthy of my praise. And, And beyond that, we see that he also worships in obedience he refers to his wife as Sarah immediately. We don't know how long they've been married, but they're getting on in years. He's known her as Sarai for a long, long, long time. And about five seconds ago, God said, don't you call her Sarai anymore. You call her Sarah. And he said, hey, my wife, Sarah. Oh, what a great moment of obedience. A small thing, but an important thing. What a great thing that we see this man, he doesn't understand. He's, he's, he's having a hard time accepting what God's word is telling him, but he says, you know, I'm going to obey in this small way. I'm going to obey with worship. I'm going to fall down before God and acknowledge that he's God and he's the decider and he is the, the communicator of truth and I'm going to obey him. He's to be commended for these things. But we do see that his faith at this point in time is limited to what he considers possible. Very important for when we get over to Genesis 22. When Genesis 22, where we see Abraham in the fullness of his faith's maturity, and God says, I want you to offer up your son, your only son, Isaac. I want you to offer him up as a human sacrifice. And what do we see there? Does Abraham say it's impossible for this to happen? He says, I assume God will have to raise him from the dead. So let's let's get it on. Let's do it. Well, if he he thought that, you know, a 90-year-old woman having a baby was impossible, certainly he thought that the resurrection from the dead was also impossible from a human perspective. And so we see a difference here. At this point in time, Abraham's faith is limited to what he considers possible. He does the math right there in his head. 100 years old, 90 years old. Nope, that's not going to work. And he's concluded that what God has said cannot be done. But he still wants to be in partnership with God. He still, he still says to God, Lord, Lord, I want these heavenly realities to be, to be true in my life. I, I want what you're talking about. 
And so he floats this idea before the Lord. Why don't we go with Ishmael? He's the next best thing. I'm 100 years old. I might be kicking the bucket soon. He's 13. He's practically a man in our culture. We're ready to go here. There's a great transition plan we've worked out. But here's the problem. The Ishmael idea was bad 13 years ago, and it's still bad now. Just because some time has passed doesn't make this idea any better. Here is how God likes to do his work according to his word. He says, no, 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 not by might, nor by power, your power, but by my spirit is how I do things. Now, as as believers, we want him to work in our lives and we want him to work in our midst. So we need to accept the fact that the ideas for how God is going to work are not going to be our ideas. We don't set the agenda. We don't make the plan. It's okay to ask God, Lord, do you want us to do this? It's okay to see, if, is this door open? Is this door closed? But we don't set the agenda. We don't make the plan. It is his plan. It is his idea. And most certainly, the methods by which the Lord is going to work in our lives are not going to be worldly methods. Instead, we are to discern what the will of God is and then follow in it. The New Testament tells us that. Look at Romans 12. Look at these other things. Discern what the will of God is and then go and follow after that. Verse 19 says, but God said, no, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac and I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. God did not refuse Ishmael because he hated him. He loved Ishmael, clearly. He cared about Ishmael. He's going to save Ishmael's life two times. He already did before when when, when Hagar ran when she was pregnant. They're going to get driven out into the wilderness again, and and God's going to go to bat for them again. He loves Ishmael. He had a wonderful plan for Ishmael's life, but this specific plan for the Messiah was going to come through Isaac and only through Isaac. God has particular plans for your life, plans that are different than his plans for my life. They are particular. We are not meant to be drifters wandering about while life happens to us. Instead, we are invited to submit to God and learn at the feet of our Lord who has adopted us into his household. Why? So that we can serve there and grow there and be sent out from there according to his good pleasure. Because he's the father, he's the master, he's the king, he's the lover of our souls. And so we don't drift, we, we, we devote ourselves to God and ask him what he desires for us and from us. Verse 22, when he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. You have to, if you're Abraham, you have to wonder, is this the last, am I going to see you another time in the next 13 years or what? We have to assume that it's been 13 years since he had a talk with God, at least face to face, or at least in this way. Undoubtedly, Abraham was still praying, still worshiping in his life, but what an interesting moment. Well, I thought I was supposed to live out my life in your presence. What do I do? Well, though the Lord was gone from Abraham's sight, Abraham, of course, was not gone from God's sight. He was still able to walk before the Lord. What does that mean? 
means that what God is talking about is a heart position. It was the position of disposition. Abraham was left without the visual presence of God himself, but he could continually seek the Lord for his personal life, his family life, his future decisions, his future hope, and God expected him to do so. In this church age, God feels far when it comes to the human senses, sight, sound, touch. We don't audibly hear the voice of God. We don't see Christ walking the earth next to us like those believers uh, for three and a half years in his ministry did. We don't smell him and taste him. We can't touch him with our fingers and in our hands. And yet, he is not withdrawn. We are promised this very explicitly in the Bible. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He has placed you when and where you are so that you might seek him, but not just seek him on a wild goose chase, so that you might seek him and reach out and find him, for he is not far from any one of us. These are the promises of the New Testament. Verse 23 says, So Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Abraham, like I said, we call him the father of the faith. Faithfulness means obedience. It's not just something that, oh yeah, I I agree in my head. It's one thing to agree in your head, but then you follow through in obedience, doing what God has told you to do. This was difficult obedience, painful obedience, real deal rubber meets the road obedience. But Abraham did it that very day. He didn't wait. What an interesting moment it must have been when Ishmael came and he said, okay, dad, what does this mean? And Abraham said, it means we're in covenant with God. Okay, well, what else did God say? And Abraham would have said, well, God said he has a plan for you, but it's not the one that I wanted. So we're going to go with what the Lord has said, even still, and we're going to trust him. It would have been an interesting moment between father and son. What about for us tonight? These moments of biblical history are stirring. They're important for us to know. But God really does intend them to be more than just historical, right? It's not just given just as a history lesson. Most of us know that something called the Mayflower Compact was a signed agreement and a significant stepping stone in U.S. history that in some great aggregate way led to, you know, the United States today. But it has little bearing on our actual day-to-day lives, right? That's not what this history story is. It's not supposed to just be the Mayflower Compact. You see, God's word is given to profit us, the Second Timothy says, to train us and equip us and correct us so that we can be the people of God who know the power of God and do the work of God. We see in this text God reminding believers of how close he is and how great his love is for his people and how he has intentions for our lives And he has more to show us, more to give us, more to do with us. They're things that God's people cannot discern on their own. They need it to be revealed. And we see that God wants to reveal. But in order to do so, believers have to participate through faithful obedience. They have to set aside their own notions and their own plans and instead receive from the Lord. 
If we want to be in that position, the Bible says we need to be people who believe and who have circumcised hearts. That with the Spirit, we cut away the fleshiness and the self-autonomy and the disbelief and that we worship the Lord and trust Him and be in His presence and listen for His voice and make decisions in line with how He's leading us. We all want a greater revelation of God's plan for us as individuals and, and for our families and for our church. We want to be directed. We want to experience His presence in a personal, powerful, meaningful way. But often, I would say, we a lot of us feel a disconnect. Lord, I, I want to I know you the way it seems like Abraham knew you. Of course, the Bible says, man, you guys are at, we are at such a greater advantage to all of these people. Okay, so what do we see here? We see Abraham worshiped and obeyed God even when he didn't understand, and he was able to enjoy a powerful, close friendship with the Lord. What do we obey? We obey the scriptures where we discover what God has said. How do we worship? We're going to do that together in just a moment, praising God, thanking him for his power and his goodness, magnifying him in our hearts and from our lips, proclaiming how great and how awesome and how wonderful he is. Now, there are two pitfalls we can identify in this scene. We don't want to be an Ishmael and we don't want to be a lot. Lot's not here, but he's also here in an interesting way. You see, Ishmael was circumcised, right? It says it right there in our text. But he, as a character, is never an example to us of a person who honored God or believed God or walked with God. Quite the contrary. In that sense, he's like a person who went through the rituals of belief, the rites of religion, without actually offering his heart to the Lord. And therefore, he did not enjoy fellowship with God. He did not enjoy the work of God through him, despite the fact that he was circumcised. So his body was circumcised, but his heart was not, as far as his character goes, as it's elaborated in the Bible. But then there's Lot. And I had never thought about this before. But Lot was uncircumcised. We have no reason whatsoever to believe that he ever was circumcised. And yet, he's declared righteous in the New Testament. How is that possible based off of what we've just read in this chapter? Well, looking at his life, we see he clearly did not enjoy closeness with God. He did not enjoy intimacy with God. He did not follow the leading of God. We are going to see him in heaven. But man, he, if, if anybody was saved as through fire, Lot was literally saved as through fire when his whole house and his family and his town was all burned up with fire and brimstone. He lived outside the warmth of God's leading and grace. Why? Because he went his own way and he had his own ideas. He wasn't concerned with God's leading. In one of those notorious soccer contracts I mentioned before, Giuseppe Reina, a German striker, thought he'd make his own plan and get well off of it. He demanded, as part of his signing agreement, that a particular team would build him a new house for every year he spent with them. Got him, he thought. Sure, said the club, we'll sign right now. And so, pleased with his plan, Giuseppe signed on the dotted line. Imagine the disappointment he felt when he received the house the club built for him out of Legos. Because this, the contract did not stipulate what kind of house. They did that three years in a row. That's a real thing that happened. <laughs> That's a lot. I'm going to build myself something. You built a Lego house, 
and it got all smashed up. And when you stepped on it, it really hurt your feet. As Christians, it does no good for us to try to make our own spiritual plans. As a church and as individuals and as families, our first question must always be, what does God want? What does God want? We want him to do new things in us. We want to see great things. That's true. That's good. That's wonderful. But more than that, we want what God wants. And we know God wants to speak to us, and He wants to direct us, and He wants to grow uh, in us, and, he, and, and we don't want to miss any of that. So let Abraham be our encouragement tonight. The way to have a faith full of growth and closeness with the Lord, experiencing His presence, is by listening and worshiping, being ready to obey even when it's painful, and refusing to either go our own way or to simply go through the motions of religion, instead to follow after God's word and leading, knowing that he is always good and that he keeps on getting better.